Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by the Taking Church to the Community Video Toolkit. Explore strategies your congregation can use to reach beyond its walls with worship, community events, ministries, and service. Learn more and watch introductory videos at churchleadership.com shop. And remember to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. The rapid growth in the percentage of Americans claiming no religious affiliation is drastically reshaping the country's religious and cultural landscape. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Ryan Burge, a leading expert on the nuns, about the characteristics of the growing cohort of Americans who say their religion is nothing in particular. Welcome to Leading Ideas Podcast. My name is Ann Michael. I'm a senior consultant with the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and I'm also one of the editors of Leading Ideas e-newsletter, and I am pleased to serve as the host for this episode. We are delighted to have as our guest uh, today Dr. Ryan Burge, who's Assistant Professor of Political Science at Eastern Illinois University. He is an academically trained researcher who also happens to be a pastor of an American Baptist church. And as such, he has a special interest, I think, in using data to understand trends in American religious and political life. Uh, His work made headlines back in 2018 uh, when he was among the first to observe that the number of people in America who claim no religious affiliation, a a group of people sometimes referred to as the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, was actually surpassing the size of the nation's two largest religious groups, Roman Catholic and evangelicals, and would uh, in all likelihood soon become the largest uh, religion in America. And uh, in 2021, he released a, what I consider a groundbreaking book entitled The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They're Going. And this spring, the second edition of The Nuns has come to press. And it is a tremendous honor to get to talk with you today, Dr. Birch. Welcome to Leading Ideas Talks. I so much appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So, um, Your books are crammed full of data and charts and analysis and lots of detail, Uh, but today I'd kind of like to focus on some of the major conclusions and takeaway for our audience, which is mostly pastors and other church leaders. And so to begin the conversation, um, I wondered if you could, in just a few sentences, define the term nuns and describe how this segment of our population has changed in recent years. Yeah, so for me, the nuns are actually three subgroups, uh, atheists, mm-hmm. agnostics, and then a group called Nothing in Particular, which I, I hope would be the biggest takeaway from the book is the importance of the nothing in particular as a type of nun. So if we put five nuns in a room, one would be an atheist, one would be agnostic, and three would be nothing in particular. So most nuns are not atheist agnostic. They're, um, they're nothing in particular. This group of Americans was about 5% of the adult population in the early 1970s. 
stayed about that level until the early 1990s, got to about 7% by 1991. And then from that point forward, we've seen sort of an exponential uh, rise in the share of Americans who have no religion. I call it a hockey stick. Look at the graph. It looks like a hockey stick. It was flat from the 70s through the early 90s. And then from that point forward, it just goes up and up and up. And today, depending on how uh, what survey you look at, about 30% of Americans, adult Americans, they say they have no religious affiliation. And amongst the youngest adults, so Generation Z, it's probably um, over 40%. Probably in the low 40% of Americans have no religious affiliation. I think it's the largest shift um, in American culture, uh, in at least in my lifetime, the last 40 years. Right. And um, I think we are not fully grasping all the implications and complications that come in American life because of that. Yeah. So um, the next obvious question is why? And that's that's really what you examine in your book. And you look at a whole wide range of factors that have possibly played a role, uh, secularization, the, the rise of the internet, uh, social isolation, changing family structures. But the one thing that really jumped off the page for me uh, was your statement, and I quote, the best and clearest explanation for the rapid rise of religious disaffiliation can be traced back to the recent political history of the United States. Uh, basically, you believe that there's been an exodus of liberals from the church with the rise of the religious right. So I wondered if you could explain that hypothesis and why you think that's been um, a significant part of this. Yeah, so I, this is something that sociologists have looked at now for about 20 years or so. So I'm not the first one to kind of like say, oh, it's it's all politics. There's a great piece by Houghton Fisher that came out in 2002 that sort of made this claim. And this is like when the nuns were a lot smaller than they are today, only about 10% versus 30% today. But if you look back at American religious history, American religious history, especially white religious history, let's we got, we got to be clear about this. Amongst non-white people, this looks a lot different, okay? okay. But amongst white Americans um, – for a long time, there was space in American religion for conservatives and for liberals. I mean, if you walked into, let's say, a, an evangelical church in 1985, you'd be just as likely to sit next to a, a, a someone who voted for a Democrat as someone who voted for the Republican. It, it, it's the same is true in a mainline church. It's like a United Methodist Church, an Episcopalian mm -hmm. Church, or even a Catholic church. Um, you know, the, the pews were very divided in the 1980s. There were Democrats and Republicans. And what we've seen really is sort of a homogenization process where um, white religion has become overwhelmingly Republican, and and now there is not a lot of space. There is no large liberal denomination in America that even comes close to matching the size and the scope and the power of, let's say, the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention is 15, 16 million people. Uh, Seventy-five percent of them voted for Donald Trump in 2020. The counterbalance is the Episcopal Church. Uh, the Episcopal Church has about two and a half million members, but only about 500,000 go to church every Sunday, and about two-thirds of them voted for Joe Biden in 2020. So you know, even in terms of scope and scale, there is no there is no large liberal white tradition, Protestant or Catholic even. Catholics are becoming more conservative over time, and I think what's mm -hmm. happened is a lot of moderates and even liberal white Protestants and Catholics thought, you know, I don't want to be in an environment where we talk about things like quote unquote traditional family values all the time. I want to be in a situation where I, you know, can hear things that I like to hear. They don't have those options anymore. And so a lot of people just said, you know what, I'll just stay home on Sunday because yeah. it's easier to stay in my bed than go hear something I don't want to hear week in and week out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as somebody who goes to a progressive church, I I one of the things that surprises me is that my own children who are in their 30s, 
they think of church as conservative, even though that's not the church that they grew up in. But <laughs> what they hear on the news and the way they hear church talked about in American cultural life, they, they somehow, you know, they have conflated church with conservative, um, even though that's not true in every church. Oh, I mean, there are, listen, there are pockets of liberalism uh, but I will say though, those pockets are almost always confined to urban and suburban yeah. areas. I mean, if you go to rural America, my county, I live in Jefferson County, Illinois, which is about 40,000 people or so in rural downstate Illinois. There are a total of four mainline churches in my entire county. Um, mm -hmm. Mine has 10 people on a good Sunday, American Baptist Church. Um, the Episcopals don't even meet anymore because they can't find a priest. Uh, the, United, the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and um, the PCUSA actually had to join together in the mm -hmm. same building because they couldn't afford separate buildings anymore. And I think combined, they have 50 or 75 people in both services on a Sunday morning. And then there's the United Methodist. And there's a couple mm -hmm. hundred people, and they're a prominent, you know, wealthy congregation downtown. But again, they have a looming vote coming over same-sex marriage, yeah. and if they're going to stay or they're going to go. And there's a good chance that that congregation is going to be significantly smaller in 10 years than it is today. So there might be a scenario in 10 years in my county, there might be one functioning mainline church in a county of 40,000 people when there are probably 100, if not more, non-denominational evangelicals or Southern Baptists or Pentecostals or charismatic churches. So in rural America, we've seen the decimation of moderate or liberal religious organizations. And so for a lot of people who are of those persuasions, who don't mind Jesus and actually don't you know don't really care about the idea they don't think it's bad they have no place to go and for them nuns is 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 the best place to be because honestly it requires less work than being part of a congregation right. and having to put up with people so yeah so i think a lot of us have in our minds eye kind of a stereotypical idea of what a nun looks like right we, so we think of a millennial hipster young white reasonably well educated more likely a guy than a girl right um yeah. but another major takeaway from your book for me is that as the nuns have grown to be a much larger demographic segment they have also become more diverse and reflective of the racial and gender diversity of our country so i wondered if you could speak to that a bit yeah so i think you you actually described i think the, the textbook atheist which is like a okay. white upper educated you know upper class um, white guy mm -hmm. you know living in an urban or suburban area like that's a textbook atheist atheists are um, 60% men and 40% women, they're actually the most gender imbalanced religious quote unquote group in America today. Mm -hmm. But again, atheists are only about 6% of the American population. So they're, they're relatively small compared to our nothing and agnostics, by the way, I call them diet atheists. Cause they're just like slightly less income, slightly less education, slightly less liberal on a, on an ideology <laughs> scale, like 10% less of everything. It seems like, um, but nothing in particular is are a huge part of the nuns. So like 22% of Americans are nothing in particular. And amongst college age people, 18 to 22, they're actually the plurality. 33% of young people say they're nothing in particular, more than say they're Protestant or Catholic. So it's becoming the, you know, like the default category for American religion is nothing in particular. These folks are not doing well. So, you know, from an SES standpoint, they're not getting ahead um, they are the least educated religious group in America today. About half of atheists have a four-year college degree. It's only 25% of nothing yeah. in particulars have a college degree. 60% uh, of nothing in particulars make less than $50,000 a year as a household. 
a third of nothing in particulars don't have a college degree or have a high school diploma or less and make $50,000 a year or less. So you're talking like a third of this group is just struggling amongst atheists. It's less than 15%. So, you Mm -hmm. know, from a societal standpoint, the nothing in particular are the group. And I talk to reporters all the time about this group, trying to get them to write more about this group. Cause I think they're really important about the, you know, for the future of American democracy and religion. The problem is they go, how do I find one? (laughs) And that's the problem. (laughs) Like they're, they're everywhere, but they're nowhere at the same time in terms, they don't have like atheists. I don't, from a social science standpoint, I don't worry about atheists. They're doing fine educationally, economically, societally, culturally. And they're actually doing a lot of, of, of uh, political advocacy. Nothing in particular is do none of that. Educationally, they're falling behind income wise. They're falling behind and they don't uh, put up yard signs, political yard signs. They don't go to political meetings. They feel left out, left behind, lost, unmoored, disconnected from the larger society. And I think that is a lot more problematic from a democratic standpoint, little democratic standpoint, because they feel like society does not work for them. And that leads to a lot of bad outcomes. But it's also important from an uh, evangelism and outreach perspective for churches, because I think your point that this is a segment of the population that is struggling economically, but also very isolated socially, uh, you know, you have defined this as the biggest potential mission field for the American church, but, but there are people that, um, that have, a, have certain needs that the, that the church could help with. And so, I mean, it's kind of the good news, bad news thing, but, it, but, but, I, but I do appreciate the clarity that you've brought to understanding that. Another thing that was so interesting to me in your analysis is, um, you know, you've identified that atheists and agnostics are a pretty small segment of the religiously disaffiliated. They're people who have a somewhat well thought out religious worldview, but these nothing in particular people don't necessarily. And one of the facts in your book that just kind of blew me away was that um, you say that 15% of these folks who say their religion is nothing in particular actually attend religious services at least once a month. I mean, that's a higher rate of attendance than half the people in my church. So <laughs> so what's that about? Yeah, I think it's because they're not. So we think about the, uh, there's a great book called Secular Surge that came out by Campbell Lehman Green. It's an academic book, but they make this really interesting point. There's a huge difference between being secular and being non-religious, right? Mm-hmm. So, so secular people are people who have taken and thrown off the religious worldview. Right. So they don't Mm -hmm. think spiritual things are the answer to questions and they don't look for, you know, guidance from above, things like that. They look for science and reason and logic. Um, They've gotten they've gotten rid of that and and, and replaced it with something else. Mm -hmm. Non-religious people have gotten rid of that religious, but have not replaced it with something else. They are defined by what they're not, not by what they are. And Mm -hmm. I think these nothing in particulars are a group who are defined by what they've gotten rid of, but they're not antagonistic towards religion. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not they're antagonistic towards, I think, a lot of institutions in American society and religion just happens to be an institution like banks or big business right. or you know politics or whatever. They're, they're distrustful because of that, but they don't have a specific beef against religion, you know, and that's why they're somewhat still open to the idea of religious practice. Like a third of them say religion is at least somewhat important in their lives, somewhat or mm-hmm. very important in their lives. So they still see some value in that. Yet they can't, 
they're not willing to be labeled by saying they're Protestant or Catholic or Mormon or Buddhist or whatever it is. So I, and if you look in the, actually, I think the most um, hopeful thing in the data is I look at these uh, panel surveys, which are people, they ask the same people, the same questions over a long period of time with five, six, seven, eight years. I have one that goes from 2011 to 2020. So you can see how people move around mm-hmm. religion over like a nearly a decade and during the Trump years too. And what you find is about 15% of nothing particulars say they're nothing particular at the beginning in 2011 and became Christians by 2020. I mean, so that's yeah, so there's movement. Mm-hmm. And that's a, if you think about it, that's 15% of like 22% of the population. You're talking like 3% of Americans over that period of time went from being nothing to being something. And, mm-hmm. and, and I wrote a piece for the Gospel Coalition going, stop debating atheists. You know what percentage of atheists went from being an atheist to being a Christian over that same time period? Less than 1%. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're talking 1% of 6% of the population versus 15% of 22% of the population. You're talking 30 times more successful looking for the nothing in particulars versus the atheists because atheists aren't moving. They're, 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 they've adopted a different worldview. Right. They've adopted a different worldview. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And nothing in particulars well, have not done that. Right. So that's really helpful to make that distinction, because I think it's so easy for people to imagine that everyone who's religiously disaffiliated is an atheist. And that that isn't the case. I, you know, so much of the other uh, things I've read about the nuns uses the term spiritual, but not religious. You don't use that terminology in your book. So I I wondered if you if you had anything to say about that. I don't. I don't know if I find that an incredibly helpful distinction to make because I think Mm -hmm. at at almost every level, the data says that Americans are deeply spiritual. You Mm -hmm. know, like if you look at even a a basic question like uh, what is your belief about God? Um, I think people will be shocked to know that over 90 percent of Americans still say they believe in God at some level. You know, so we are overwhelmingly at least an aspirationally religious Mm -hmm. or spiritual people. I think really what that's about is about institutions and institutional trust. It's like Mm -hmm. the idea of like, I like Jesus and I like God. I just don't like the church because it's an institution. And and that's what people are rebelling against, I think, more than anything else. I think the biggest crisis that we're facing in America today is a a crisis of trust. And And that's trust of institutions, but it's also interpersonal trust. Like, do you think another human being can be trusted or not? That is what religion used to be really, really good at is showing people that institutions right. are are bad and corrupt and can possibly be bad. You know, overall, they do good things though. It just because they're 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 made of people. And it also tells it teaches us that people who are different than us are not bad. You know, you church, like I used to talk, I talk about churches used to be a place of diversity, right. political diversity, economic diversity, educational diversity. And now they've homogenized. And I think that that creates these silos, these enclaves. Where now you look at other people and go, you're wrong, we're right, we got it all figured out over here. That's really bad from a from a democracy standpoint because democracy works because we tolerate people right. who are different than us, and we have less tolerance now and less trust now. And I think we're much more suspicious. Cynicism is bad. <laughs> like I think we need to be very clear yeah. about that. And I think we live in an age of cynicism. And I think we need to fight back as Christians, especially. We need to be hopeful people and inject hope into what we talk about, about the future, about each other, about institutions, about society. And unfortunately, we seem to make it worse in some mm-hmm. ways because we don't fight back against cynicism. I think religion used to be the ultimate cynicism fighter. And now that fewer people are going to church, yeah. they're not hearing those messages of hope. And I think they're reverting back to kind of our worst impulses, which are don't trust anyone. Don't trust any institution. Just you know, fight for yourself yeah. and, and mind your own business. 
that's not how we're designed to work in a democracy. Right. Yeah, no, the loss of the social capital of the church is, is pretty significant uh, in a lot of ways. You know, if I can move on to another subject, in the second edition of your book, uh, you know, it, it, it covers the pandemic years and, and you ask the question, what effect the pandemic had on these trends? I think many of us are in churches and have seen the significant decrease in attendance that has happened since the pandemic. Probably imagine that the pandemic has really accelerated this in a significant way. But at the end of the day, you conclude that the pandemic wasn't really that big of a factor. What you're seeing is just a continuation of the same underlying trend lines. And that's and that's the question. I wrote that chapter specifically because so many people ask me that during interviews uh -huh. over the last eighteen months. You know what's happened? Like that. You know, there's there were two theories, kind of competing theories that really go in opposite directions. One is it made us more introspective. It gave us time to pause and think about our lives and our spirituality. And then we kind of walk. Some people said, "Well, I need to get back in church because like I need that. Mm -hmm. You know, like I need to have purpose and meaning in my life." The other school of thought was, well, people got out of the habit of going to church, yeah. and then they never got back in the habit of going to church when churches reopened. If you look at the data, you really see neither theory have that much confirmation. Mm -hmm. and, and But now, when I tell people that, like a lot of pastors go, well, what you're telling me is disconnected from what I'm seeing on the ground every Sunday. Like, mm -hmm. the pews are emptier. Mm -hmm. I think part of that, though, is the fact that when people answer survey questions, they answer them aspirationally. Like, yeah. when I ask the question, like, how often do you attend church? No one does the tally mark system. They're like, well, let me let you last year I went 47 times. So that's weekly. They don't do that. What they do mm -hmm. is they say, I'm the type of person, given ideal circumstances, meaning no COVID, I would go every Sunday or I would never go. You know, like that's and I even tell like the story in the book. Let's let's say there's an older woman. She's a weekly attending Methodist. She's been going weekly for her entire life and she gets cancer. And she can't go to church because she's doing chemotherapy and she can't be around a bunch of people. So she misses six months, you know, and then we come in and ask her a survey question. How often do you go to church? She says every week. Is she a liar? No, she's not a liar. She, she's the kind of person who would go every week if she right. could. So mm -hmm. I think what we saw during the pandemic is people still answer those questions in the aspirational way. Like if no COVID existed, I would still be there once a month or I would still be there once a week. And that's why we're not seeing the we're seeing the disconnect between what people are seeing in the pews every Sunday and what people are answering on surveys. It's also hard to know what the decline looks like because we've been declining in attendance for 30 years now. And if right. the attendance declined 3% between 2019 and 2022, is that 3% because of COVID or is it just the natural decline that was going on in America for the last 30 years continuing through COVID? These are not easy questions to answer. And we might never really truly know right. the answer to these questions, even in five or 10 years. Yeah. Well, so um, all of this really begs the question for those of us who are church leaders is, you know, what, what can we do? Uh, um, and I really appreciate the fact that in the second edition of your book, you, you, um, you speak really, I think, in wearing your hat as a pastor to, to some of this. And um, you make some suggestions that I thought were really helpful. Um, so I just wanted to name a couple of them and, and give you the opportunity to speak to them. Um, one suggestion you make is that churches really need to listen. Uh, to the stories of those who have moved on from the church and, uh, you know, establish those relationships and get to know people and, 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 and really hear the honest truth of what's going on in their lives. Um, do, you, do, can, do you want to speak to that or maybe, maybe what that has looked yeah, like no. in your ministry? I will say, so part of being a social scientist is we have to oversimplify the world. 
Like there's just no way we cannot explain the world without oversimplifying the world. And that's unfortunate. You know, I remember when I was in grad school, we had this conversation about this book called Suicide by Emil Durkheim. Trying to fi- Durkheim mm-hmm. was trying to figure out why people took their own lives. And so he would go around to all these different morgues in Paris and collect the death records of people who committed suicide. And they can they actually had a ton of information on age, race, gender, mm-hmm. but also religion. Um, they were recorded in in his whole theory was what he found was that Protestants committed uh, suicide at a higher rate than Catholics did. And he said it's because Protestantism is an individualized religion and Catholicism is more communal religion. And I remember we were talking about that in class and we were talking – someone goes, wait a minute. Isn't this kind of reductive? Like aren't we like uh, every human life matters and we're kind of like being overly reductive by talking about this in broad strokes. Yeah. And our professor goes, listen, I'm less interested in why Bob killed himself than why people like Bob kill themselves and that's the way that we have to think about this from a sociological perspective like bob matters yes bob matters as a human being as a pastor bob matters but we also need to figure out what were the factors that led to people like bob taking his own life when it comes to the nuns there are a lot of bobs out there right there's a lot of bobs and they got to being a nun through all kinds of different backgrounds and in writing this book and in doing you know talks and speeches and stuff like this people come up to me afterwards and say well here's my story and a lot of times their story will touch on that aspect of what I talked about in the book, whether it be I got divorced or um, I grew up in a non-religious household or I, I'm a liberal, political liberal in a com- conservative community, and I couldn't, you know, couldn't stomach that anymore. And then every once in a while they'll tell you something just totally random, you know, like something that happened to them or you know a, a reason I didn't talk about. But what I almost always find is there's commonalities between them and what I talk about in the book, and then there's some differences. Now. We've got to be better listeners, right? Sometimes it's politics. They left because they don't like Trump or MAGA or whatever it is. But sometimes it's things like I'm gay and I grew up in a community that does not affirm gay people or right. I was abused by my parents and they said spare the rod, spoil the child to me when they were hitting me. You know, you'll hear all these stories of like I was sexually abused by a pastor or, or you know, you can go on and on and on. I was spiritually abused by a pastor. So there's there are very um, there's commonalities oftentimes, but there's also every individual has their own story. There's 80 million nuns in America today, and they all got there by a different path. And I think the key there is just to listen because you're not going to be able to solve all their problems. If they're spiritually abused when they were 12 years old, you can't fix that in one meeting or 10 meetings or even maybe 100 meetings. Your job is to listen to that and to validate that and say, I hear what you're saying. Um, But also if you can, you know, sometimes people leave for dumb reasons, (laughs) like they moved the service back half an hour, and I didn't want to do that. You (laughs) push back where you think it's appropriate. You know, uh, things like that, but just listen sometimes and be Mm -hmm. willing to just hear these, you know, these stories of trauma because they do exist and don't try to sweep them under the rug. Don't try to be apologetic about it, you know, and say like, oh, but but what about this? And what about your soul? And what about this? No, just listen to them. Be a human being first and be an evangelical second. That's what I tell people. Just be a human being. And I think you'll go, you'll get a lot more, you'll, you'll build a better relationship just by no ulterior motives, just being open and listening to what they have to tell you. Yeah, so building relationships and social connections was one of the takeaways that I think is is so important. And and you know, treating understanding that these are all individual people with individual stories. You also had some advice. So much of this has to do with political polarization right now. Mm-hmm. You have some advice also for how churches might address political issues in in this context. Uh, I thought was helpful as well. So I I'm a big believer in you can't just not talk about it. Okay, I think that's really bad. 
Because if you don't disciple your folks, someone is on these political issues. Yeah. And whether it be Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow or, and you know Chris Hayes on the other side, those people are going to disciple your people if you choose mm. not to. You know, power power loves a vacuum. And if you don't speak into the political power that you know we have as Americans, someone else is going to. But I think you have to do it in a bipartisan, nonpartisan way, which is talk about the Bible. Sometimes the Bible is going to make Republicans feel bad, and sometimes it's going to make Democrats feel bad. You know, the concept I talk about in the Bible is Imago Dei, which is that every human being is born in the image and likeness of God. And that means that God cares about the unborn, absolutely, but he also cares about the disabled. He also cares about the immigrant. He also cares about people on death row. You know, every human being is born in the image and likeness of God. And that's, I think, if we can talk about, we can use theology and say, you should look at politics through a theological lens. You're going to get a lot farther and you're going to get a lot more respect from your people, too, because it's going to force them to think about their political ideology. And it's going to make you, if you, here's what I hate when people go on Facebook, especially pastors love to be on Facebook. I don't really know why. <laughs> they, they almost always give it to one party and not the other party. Stop. Stop doing that. If you're going to be political, you need to be equally critical of both sides or avoid it entirely. Michael Jordan was asked one time, why are you not more political? And he said, because Republicans buy sneakers, too. You know, like we Republicans need Jesus and so do Democrats. If you only push it on one party, what you're saying to the other people is saying you don't belong here. You're not welcome here. And I don't think churches should be trying to cut down their addressable market by doing that. They should make it as wide mm -hmm. and as expansive as possible, and yet pastors tend to not do that. So it's a tough situation. It's hard to talk about politics in yeah. the pulpit, but we have to. I think it's our mandate as pastors to try to speak into the lives of our people about politics in a neutral, objective, bipartisan, nonpartisan way. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that, because so many of my students think the best thing is to just, you know, if they get any pushback at all in politics is to just clamp up and never talk about it. And that's that's not that's not our calling. So I really appreciate what you have to say about that. Uh, I, to draw this to a close, I, I have to say, I, I don't know if anyone has ever told you uh, that the end of your book brought them to tears, but the end of your book literally brought me to tears. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I thought I might close by, by just quoting the last few sentences of your book because I found it so poignant. poignant. Uh, you say, the winds of secularization and polarization are swirling like never before. Most of the seeds we sow are going to fall on rocky soil, never, re never to reap a harvest. And it seems that there are fewer and fewer people to spread that seed every year. It's easy to give up hope, but we must recall the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap the harvest if you do not give up. Seeds that express the love and grace and hope of Jesus Christ is never truly lost. Do not give up. Um, I thought that was such a good word because I, I think so many people see these trends and, and, and it's just so discouraging. Uh, but I really appreciated um, the, the way that you brought your book to a close and reminded us how important it is for us just to continue to be to be reaching out to people in our community. So so thank you for that. Thank you. I didn't even realize those. I, I wrote those words three years, you know, like and you write sometimes and you look back on it and go, well, I actually had it in that moment. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> a lot of times I'll write something and go back and uh, like a day later and go, that's awful. I am so bad at this. And then sometimes you write something every once in a while and go, okay, like I can, I can live with that. Yeah, so, I was literally weeping when I read that well, because I just thought it was so, it was so poignant. Um, I want to thank you. I have learned so much from reading both editions of The Nuns. Uh, I have really studied it and, and, and just found it to be tremendously helpful. And I am grateful that you have paid as much attention to this phenomenon that it's due. Uh, so I'm grateful for your body of work. You also have a new book coming out uh, later this year, The Great Dechurching, mm -hmm. which you've written in conjunction with some pastors. So I think that'll provide a really helpful lens on this as well. Uh, so thank you for your work. Thank you for your ministry. Uh, thank you for spending time talking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Anne. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.